0: For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and in presenting this readout video from our latest Wednesday Wake-Up newsletter, we are cooking with gas. Including with our new Sea Level Check video series that debunks simplistic alarmist claims about a uniform, accelerating sea level rise worldwide caused by people. And also with our reflections on the alarmist stampede to ban gas stoves. Canary Media says there's nothing to see, quote, A study found that gas stoves cause asthma. A federal official suggested the government might take action. The right-wing freaked out. There is no federal gas stove ban in the works, end quote. Oh, really? Because it's how these things start. A dubious claim is put forward, concerns are ridiculed, the claim mutates into settled science, and suddenly the ban hammer comes down. Hence, the Washington Post story that started the ruckus wrote, quote, Last month, Commissioner Richard Trumka Jr. announced that the agency would issue a request for public comments by March on possible regulations on gas stoves, which he said could be on the books by the end of this year, end quote. Which sounds like a ban is to follow. And here, you see, one of the curious features of climate alarmism is that even though they know that methane is better than fuels like coal from their own point of view, they're so hostile to natural gas that, as with nuclear, they want to shut it down first and then wonder why the coal plants are getting fired back up. So the economist, rather typically, after mocking, quote, how gas stoves became part of America's culture wars, end quote, and blaming it on conservative gun nuts, in tone, that quote, the American Gas Association, a trade group, publishes recipes on cookingwithgas.org. In sponsored social media posts, influencers rave about their gas stoves. But the appliances, which emit nitrogen dioxide, particulate matter, and other pollutants, also carry environmental and health risks, including asthma. Burning gas also releases greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide and methane, end quote. Got it? One paper suggesting a statistically insignificant and patchy correlation based on a survey of other papers turns into, quote, carry health risks including asthma, end quote. Voila. Settled science. And since it also releases greenhouse gases, well, why take chances? Scientific American also weighed in, or leapt onto the bandwagon, insisting that the science was settled decades ago that gas stoves cause breathing problems, plus, quote, Burning natural gas produces carbon dioxide, the most prevalent greenhouse gas, and unburned natural gas contains another potent culprit, methane, end quote. And as Canary Media acknowledged, some communities, including, unsurprisingly, Berkeley, California, have in fact, quote, banned natural gas in new buildings starting in 2019, end quote, followed by San Francisco and New York City. And there should be no doubt that governments that can and do casually propose to ban gasoline cars are also quite capable of taking out gas stoves. In the newsletter, we also note that a recent opinion piece by Rick Bell blasted the Canadian federal government for picking a fight with the Canadian province of Alberta over its just transition, which we ridiculed last week. And he cited Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's strangely ignorant as well as belligerent early January claim that, quote, there is a political class in Alberta that has decided that anything to do with climate change is going to be bad for them or for Alberta. We've seen for a while Alberta hesitating around investing in anything related to climate change, end quote. Now, if that statement were true, we wouldn't blame people in Alberta. But actually, that province's politicians are perched uncomfortably on both sides of the issue thus alleged conservative climate skeptic, Danielle Smith, their new premier, fired back that Alberta was into carbon capture and storage first before the federal government. Good for you, but they've got nothing to show for it. And that's what really matters. There's no there there. And now a word from our sponsor, and that's you. Because at the climate discussion nexus, we're dependent upon support from our viewers and our readers. Please go to our donate page, and make a one-time pledge, or if you can, a monthly one. I'm not talking a lot of money though. If you've got it, we'll take it. $2 a month, $3, $5. That's the sustaining funding that we need to produce these videos on our newsletter. And now, back to me. Bloomberg recently did a quick-take video, quote, is CO2 removal ready for its big moment, end quote, which predictably insisted that, quote, in a field long plagued by hype and high costs, carbon removal startups are showing real promise. The question is whether they can scale up in time, end quote. Oh, just that, huh? At the very end, the narrator, who managed to get a few carbon capture firms to give him a small vial of their various end products, including bio-oil, says, quote, There is proof right here on my desk that this technology can work. We just need to make it work at scale, end quote. And again, we say, oh, just that? You've created a prototype at enormous cost that won't make a measurable dent in the problem? And all you need to do now is um, churn them out at a profit by reducing the enormous cost in some way you didn't think of yet? Cool. It's sort of like these green transitions, new deals, and so on. You hand out a few subsidies to money-losing factories or wind farms, and then all you have to do is scale it up to the whole economy. Once in a while, this kind of ignorance does come a cropper. And in fact, one politician who seems to become exhausted by their efforts to remake the world through soothingly inspiring rhetoric disconnected from practical outcomes is New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who just quit, worn out, and desperately unpopular despite supposedly having proved that you can have it all, and that government can solve a housing crisis and end child poverty without breaking a sweat and fix the weather in its spare time. Those who thought her a star or a saint because she sounded good lamented that she'd left because they said she still sounds good. But the truth is that she got nothing done, not even emissions reductions, because she didn't know how the world worked and she wasn't really interested. And lavish praise for her achievements can't conceal their absence, including from New Zealand voters, among her approval rating was uh, 29%. Of course, she may go on to better things at the UN or the WAF or somewhere else far from the madding crowd. As somebody recently complained about the gnomes of Davos in their World Economic Forum, quote, what strikes me most about the WEF is how little disagreement there is. The largest matters on Earth are at stake, supposedly, yet the conferees don't argue, they don't debate, all points seem smugly settled, end quote. We agree, and we find it strange too. So, trying to be positive, we're happy to note that there's a minor exception here on the question whether trees are good for climate or not. As we noted in our January 11th newsletter, there's been a sudden turn against trees among the guardians of climate orthodoxy. Zeke Housefather now tells us carbon offsets are a scam, including the ones involving trees. But Greta Thunberg and George Monbiot pat us on the head and say trees are key. So who knows? Maybe climate alarmists might start having discussions among themselves and with others instead of chanting slogans and enforcing orthodoxy. And if so, we'll be glad, because we are led to believe that that's how real science has done. But now for some science fiction. In her new pro Tree Planting video, Greta Thunberg says, quote, To survive, we need to stop burning fossil fuels, but this alone will not be enough, end quote. So she's now on the bandwagon about removing CO2 from the air and stuffing it into the ground so that we can get back to the ideal weather we had back in 1970 or 1870 or whenever it was. And here we repeat that anyone claiming it's now too hot really needs to be asked what the ideal temperature is and how they know. But we also want to say that redesigning the Earth is actually slightly presumptuous, so we'd like to see the details before saying, go ahead, give it a spin, what could go wrong? Because here's something that could go wrong. If they actually manage to change the weather, making it colder and more hostile to plants, including food crops, they could hit one of their famous tipping points, but toward an even colder and even more barren planet. The increase in temperature since 1850, whatever caused it, has coincided with an astonishing improvement in human well-being, especially in poor countries, and it's given us a bit of a buffer in terms of atmospheric CO2 against the next glaciation and a possibly deadly drop down to 150 parts per million. So maybe we should just count our blessings instead of playing God, because if you do overdo it and kill us all, then oops, sorry, meant well, I resign, won't really cut it. As for the supposedly disastrous results of man-made warming, a new study by an international team of scientists gathered detailed daily sea level measurements at three locations along the coast of Peru where the rapid sea level increases predicted by the IPCC would cause major problems, if they actually happened. But it turns out, Stop me If you've heard this before, the models were wrong. Sea levels have risen there since the 1950s, but um, they peaked in the 1980s and they've gone down since. And the overall rate of rise from 1961 to 2010 was far lower than IPCC predictions. So if Bill Gates decides to build mansions for himself all down the Pacific coast of South America, at least the ones in Peru will be safe. The article discusses all the complications associated with trying to measure sea level rise, from tides, to winds that shape the ocean surface, to movement of the land itself. Obviously, rising land makes it look like the seas are going down, and falling land does the reverse. And they also talk about regular cycles in large-scale atmospheric pressure systems like the El Niño Oscillation. And note that, amid all of this stuff, scientists are trying to measure trends in millimeters per year, and they're getting it wrong. Dang, the models were all wet, or in this case, all dry. In the newsletter, we also suggest an eye exam, or at least an iris exam. See, the iris effect was proposed in 2001 by MIT atmospheric scientist Richard Lindzen, and it said that high clouds in the tropics might actually limit warming in this roundabout way. Cirrus clouds, they're the highest kind, they're thin, they're composed mostly of ice particles, cover vast areas of the Earth every day, particularly in the western tropical Pacific and they have a net warming effect because they're opaque to outgoing heat radiation. But, Lindsay and his co-author suggested back then, for every degree Celsius that the sea surface warms, high cirrus cloud cover reduces by about 20%, meaning they let more heat out, potentially completely offsetting the impact of any warming due to greenhouse gases. And revisiting this iris effect in a new review published 20 years later, Lindzen and his co-author Yang Sang Choi describe the resulting controversy and summarize where the debate stands. Yes, debate. Science debates things. There have been papers going back and forth. And Lindzen acknowledges criticisms of his theory and limitations in available data even today. But, he says, the last 20 years have generally been good to his claim, though, of course, governments aren't willing to fund any further research on his part, the political science, being settled. Also in the newsletter, and still on sea levels, we dip again into the CO2Science.org archive for a look at how the oceans are treating those famously threatened tropical islands, in this case, the Marshalls. Weird. They're actually growing, not shrinking. So even if the seas are rising, it's not the end. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And I actually do have an electric stove, but not for political reasons.